0: J.C. Rowell's Devotional Thoughts on the Gospel of Luke, Section 77 Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you unto the synagogues, and unto magistrates, and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer, or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. We are taught firstly in these verses that we must confess Christ upon earth if we expect him to own us as his saved people at the last day. We must not be ashamed to let all men see that we believe in Christ and serve Christ and love Christ and care more for the praise of Christ than for the praise of man. The duty of confessing Christ is incumbent on all Christians in every age of the church. Let us never forget that. It is not for martyrs only, but for all believers in every rank of life. It is not for great occasions only, but for our daily walk through an evil world. The rich man among the rich, the laborer among laborers, the young among the young, the servant among servants, each and all must be prepared, if they are true Christians, to confess their master. It needs no blowing a trumpet, it requires no noisy boasting. It needs nothing more than using the daily opportunity. But one thing is certain, if a man loves Jesus, he ought not to be ashamed to let people know it. The difficulty of confessing Christ is undoubtedly very great. It never was easy at any period. It never will be easy as long as the world stands. It is sure to entail on us laughter, ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity and persecution. The wicked dislike to see anyone better than themselves. The world which hated Christ will always hate true Christians. But whether we like it or not, whether it is hard or easy, our course is perfectly clear. In one way or another, Christ must be confessed. The grand motive to stir us up to bold confession is forcibly brought before us in the words which we are now considering. Our Lord declares that if we do not confess him before men, he will not confess us before the angels of God at the last day. He will refuse to acknowledge us as his people. He will disown us as cowards, faithless, and deserters. He will not plead for us. He will not be our advocate. He will not deliver us from the wrath to come. He will leave us to reap the consequences of our cowardice and to stand before the judgment bar of God helpless, defenceless, and unforgiven. What a dreadful prospect is this! How much turns on this one hinge of confessing Christ before men? Surely we ought not to hesitate for a moment. To doubt between two such alternatives is the height of folly. For us to deny Christ or be ashamed of his gospel may get us a little of man's good opinion for a few years, Though it will bring us no real peace. But for Christ to deny us at the last day will be ruin in hell to all eternity. Let us cast away our cowardly fears. Come what will, let us confess Christ. We are taught secondly in these verses that there is such a thing as an unpardonable sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ declares that anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. These solemn words must doubtless be interpreted with scriptural qualification. We must never so expound one part of scripture as to make it contradict another. Nothing is impossible with God. The blood of Christ can cleanse away all sin, The very chief of sinners have been pardoned in many instances. These things must never be forgotten. Yet notwithstanding all this, there remains behind a great truth which must not be evaded. There is such a thing as an unforgivable sin. The sin to which our Lord refers in this passage appears to be the sin of deliberately rejecting God's truth with the heart, while the truth is clearly known with the head. It is a combination of light in the understanding and determined wickedness in the will. It is the very sin into which many of the scribes and Pharisees appear to have fallen when they rejected the ministry of the Spirit after the day of Pentecost and refused to believe the preaching of the apostles. It is a sin into which, it may be feared, many constant hearers of the gospel nowadays fall by determined clinging to the world. And worst of all, It is a sin which is commonly accompanied by utter deadness, hardness, and insensibility of heart. The man whose sins will not be forgiven is precisely the man who will never seek to have them forgiven. This is exactly the root of this dreadful disease. He might be pardoned, but he will not seek to be pardoned. He is gospel-hardened and twice dead. His conscience is seared with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2 Let us pray that we may be delivered from a cold, speculative, unsanctified head-knowledge of Christianity. It is a rock on which thousands make shipwreck to all eternity. No heart becomes so hard as that on which the light shines but finds no admission. The same fire which melts the wax hardens the clay. Whatever light we have, let us use it. Whatever knowledge we possess, let us live fully up to it. To be an ignorant heathen and bow down to idols and stones is bad enough. But to be called a Christian and to know the theory of the gospel and yet cleave to sin and the world with the heart is to be a candidate for the worst and lowest place in hell. It is to be as like the devil... As possible. We are taught lastly in this passage that Christians need not be overly anxious as to what they shall say when suddenly required to speak for Christ's cause. The promise which our Lord gives on this subject has a primary reference, no doubt, to public trials, like those of Paul before Felix and Festus. It is a promise which hundreds in similar circumstances have found fulfilled to their singular comfort. The lives of many of the Reformers and others of God's Witnesses are full of striking proofs that the Holy Spirit can teach Christians what to say in time of need. But there is a secondary sense in which the promise belongs to all believers which ought not to be overlooked. Occasions are constantly arising in the lives of Christians when they are suddenly and unexpectedly called upon to speak on behalf of their master and to render a reason of their hope. The home circle, the family fireside, the society of friends, the interaction with relatives, the very business of the world, will often furnish such sudden occasions. On such occasions, the believer should fall back on the promise now before us. It may be disagreeable, especially to a young Christian, to be suddenly required to speak before others of religion, and above all, if religion is attacked. But let us not be alarmed, or flustered, or cast down, or frantic. If we remember the promise of Christ, then we have no cause to be afraid. Let us pray for a good memory about Bible promises. We shall find the promises to be an inestimable comfort. There are far more and far wider promises laid down in Scripture for the comfort of Christ's people than most of Christ's people are aware of. There are promises for almost every position in which we can be placed and every event which can befall us. Among other promises, let us not forget that one which is now before us. We are sometimes called upon to go into company which is not congenial to us and we go with a troubled and anxious heart. We fear saying what we ought not to say and not saying what we ought. At such seasons, let us remember this blessed promise and put our Master in remembrance of it also. So doing, he will not fail us or forsake us. Wisdom shall be given to us to speak rightly. And the Holy Spirit shall teach us what to say.